3: hello everyone i'm meteorologist sean sublet and welcome to across the sky our national lee enterprises weather podcast lee enterprises has print and digital operations at more than 70 locations across the country including my home base here in richmond virginia i'm joined by my colleagues from across the sky matt holliner in chicago joe martucci at the new jersey shore kirsten lang is on assignment this week our special guest this week is Neil deGrasse Tyson. Formerly, he is the director of the Hayden Planetarium at the American Museum of Natural History in New York City. He has numerous books, television specials, and he hosts a podcast, Star Talk, where science and pop culture collide. And he's one of the most popular science communicators in the country today. His most recent book is called To Infinity and Beyond A Journey of Cosmic Discovery. I had a chance to talk with him just before he went out on a speaking tour of the East Coast. And, and fellas, I got to tell you that I got to sit down with him for about half an hour. And it was it was absolutely tremendous. You know, you see some of the, the work that these folks do in popular culture and media. And you think if you get a chance to talk to them, are they going to be that genuine? And dude, absolutely was. He was just a joy to talk with. Joe, what, what did you kind of see?
2: Well, I kind of took away the excitement that you had while you were interviewing him, Sean. That was uh, that that was tremendous. I know this was um, a really special moment for you, uh, recording this on your birthday, no less. Happy birthday, Sean. It was. Thank you. But, you know, as somebody who has been to the Hayden Planetarium a number of times in New York City, and just the connection he has with there, of course, it's uh, very special to have him on and have him really talk about some Earth and space, of course, but more the broader picture of society today and how he's contributing to the progression of society as the human race.
0: Yeah, he really is just great to listen to, just an excellent communicator. And it just so happens that he wants to communicate science. So that's really what's different about this podcast. Just a heads up, we're not going to just talk about weather on this episode. We really dive into all aspects of science communication and how it's become more challenging now because there's so many voices now. And how do people sort through all the information that's out there and really find the good information? So I really like how he dives into that. It's just an excellent conversation.
3: Yeah, we really started off by talking about the importance of, of scientific literacy. And as you're going to be a consumer of information, what to be mindful of and what to be on the lookout for. So without further ado, let's get right to our interview with Neil deGrasse Tyson. You you do so much of this outreach and it's extraordinary. So I want to talk about the importance of that outreach, Um, specifically, you know, the importance of scientific literacy and scientific communication in an era of disinformation. I mean, you work tirelessly to get the solid scientific information out there. There's so much bad information, whether it's disinformation or misinformation, you know, the change in Twitter slash X and Facebook, they're always changing algorithms. So my first question to you, you know, thinking about cosmic perspectives as we do, uh, how concerned are you about scientific literacy, both domestically and internationally? And what can any or all of us do to strengthen it?
1: Yeah, I mean, in a free country, science illiteracy is, I mean, anyone has the right to be illiterate, scientifically illiterate. There's no one's going to chase after you and you know, pin you down to a table and force-feed you science. Of course, uh, in every state, you're required to go to school through some age, uh, but it's not clear how much science is required in the minimum educational portfolio of each state. But, you know, most people do graduate high school, okay? So we can ask the question, what's going on in the science classroom in the high school? Is it what it needs to be to preempt what we see rampant across society and apparently it's not enough or it's not the right the right ingredients and so i've thought quite a bit about this i mean consider you know there's this song by alice cooper i don't know the title of the song or maybe it's just called schools out mm. uh, yeah. and oh, the yeah. line goes schools out for the summer schools out forever all right this is a very Uh, it's an it's anthemic right it's like school is done and i'm done with school and i'm going to celebrate that with a rock song and so we no one seems to be asking what's going on in school so that you would celebrate not having to go to school when your only job is to learn that's an that's an odd state we find ourselves in And I don't want to blame the student, all right? We've all toiled through classes, (laughs) but if your only job is to learn, maybe that can be made joyous. Maybe the curiosity necessary to learn, to learn on your own, is what school needs to impart in all of its students so that when you get out of school, you say, I'm sad school is over, but I now will continue to learn on my own because I've been inculcated with a, that's not a good word, I've been infused <laughs> with, with a, a, a curiosity about all that I still have yet to learn. Okay, so that's, that's a foundational comment about the school system. More specifically about science, we're taught science in these fat books with words that are bold-faced that you're supposed to memorize for the exam, and then you move on and i don't remember science being taught as a means of querying nature science is a is a tool to probe what you do not yet know and the scientific method which whoever can remember how to recite it the recitation and the words used are not very informative uh, test hypothesis it's very no no that's not what the scientific method is i will tell you what the scientific method is it is do whatever it takes to not fool yourself into thinking something is true that is not or that something is not true that is that's what the scientific method is top to bottom left to right front to back and If it means we can't trust our senses, bring out a chart recorder or bring out some other methods. If it means you're biased, get someone else to check your bias. If you have a hidden bias within you that you don't even see yourself, what are some of the... Oh, and if you're susceptible to thinking something is true just because it feels good, get someone else... Who, for whom their feelings are not invested in it being true and get their view on it and compare it with yours. These are ways to for the checks and balances of what it is you declare to be true. What I have found is a lot of the misinformation is peddled, shall I use that word, by charismatic people who will tell you on a YouTube channel or whatever is their platform I'm telling you the truth, but the big establishment wants to suppress it because they don't want you to know it. Apparently, that's irresistible. It's irresistible for truth-telling. It's irresistible for product marketing, all right? I have this new device that will bypass all of the decades of marketing that's gone on with big pharma, big business, big government, and I'm your advocate. Oh my gosh. We're we're all in when someone appeals in that way. Advertisers know this because they know that you will respond more readily to a testimony of another human being than you will to a bar chart or a pie chart, which might encapsulate all the information you need to know about the integrity of the product, but that's insufficient. Get one person saying this was the best thing i would ever seen. Is it? Wow. I want that. So there's a missing dimension to our educational training. Much of it is rooted in our knowledge, understanding and awareness of probability and statistics. Can you read the, the weight loss, data and find out that 90 percent of the people do not have the result of the person who's testifying did you read that did you look at that if you want to know where you're likely to fall in the data go take a look no it might you don't want to fall there you want to be with the successful person so our inability to think statistically confounds our ability to think sensibly and rationally about data. And without understanding what the scientific method is, especially with regard to our bias, implicit or explicit bias, known or unknown bias, it leaves adults susceptible for all the behavior we see on the internet, and especially in social media. So I'm I'm taking the hard slash easy answer to you and saying, it's the educational system that, if it were properly wired, would preempt so much of what we see in conduct as in, in, in adulthood. That's a very long answer to your question, but you asked a very loaded question there.
3: Well, there, there's a lot going on there. I'm, I'm absolutely of the same mind that there's a lot of money to be made in a capitalistic society and selling something, uh, selling information that people already want to believe. So I'm absolutely of the same mind there, and we see that uh, all the time. I want to add
1: one other thing I meant to include. So there's the charismatic person who's telling you they have the answer and others don't. There's also the lone expert, okay? The person, and we saw this during COVID, there's some MDs who were just anti-vax, right? That is not mainstream medicine. This is fringe medicine talking. And so they'll have their pedigree on the screen, MD, Stanford, Harvard, whatever these these name impressive places and then you're going to say well that's what i want to think is true anyway it resonates with where i'm coming from so i'm going to go with them and i'm going to tell people i'm listening to an expert what people are not realizing is that scientific objective truths are not established by lone wolves they're established by repeated measurements observations of a declared result and only when the repeated measurements verify it is that result anything that can be brought into the world of objective truths until that happens it is fringe it is it is and and for some reason forces were operating to get the public to think that mainstream equals bad for some reason when mainstream is exactly what progresses science It is precisely how it works, where, and mainstream is not, oh, let's just all agree and be stubborn about it. No, mainstream is, these are experiments that repeatedly give us approximately or precisely the same result. We're going with it and we're moving on to the next problem, where you will see us fight about what's true and what's not on the frontier. Uh, But until then, no. And by the way, the researchers are faceless entities. The, the people who verify their research, you don't know who they are. They don't have YouTube channels. And so there's this charismatic person speaking on their own YouTube channel. And there's this vaguely rooted result you hear. It sounds vague. Well, some research has found that this is what's actually going on. Here's what you should do. No, I'm listening to this person. And so that's just to round out what it is you were, you were trying to get across there.
3: You know, I I tell people that in in meteorology, before the before the computers got so good in these last twenty years, the best forecast is a consensus forecast. You take ten meteorologists, they look at the data, you take the average of all they say. Over time, that's going to be the forecast that ends up correct. There will always be this occasional outlier for sure, but in the longer term, that's where that's where the money is
1: is to be made. Right, right, think- and. And by the way, the word consensus, I think, officially means opinion. And so that consensus of opinion is actually redundant. But when we use the word consensus for science, these aren't opinions being expressed. These are the results of scientific experiments that are being reported by scientists. It's not simply their opinion that, no, it may come across that way. You say, well, what's the best medical opinion, right? Opinions are, get a second opinion. All right. Usually when you ask for a second opinion, it's because you didn't like the first answer and you're going to keep doctor hopping until you find an answer you like. And then you're going to say, that's the diagnosis, which is itself a confirmation bias, uh, which is the most pernicious among the biases. So, so I wish we had a different word, but we have to use it. Scientific consensus is the alignment of research outcomes, not the alignment of whimsical opinions held by scientists themselves.
3: Well, talk about word usage for a minute, because we know there are certain words we use in the scientific community that have very different connotations in the general public. The first one that comes to mind is theory. You know, when we say a scientific theory, that's pretty close to being a fact, as opposed to some kind of wishy-washy thing that a lot of um, the general public sees. That's that's kind of hypothesis. That's We're nowhere near that yet. Are are there some words that that you've kind of run up against and you've kind of just decided to
1: avoid in communication? Oh yeah, oh tons. Oh yeah. So I mean, if you're going to communicate, if you're going to call yourself an educator slash communicator, then you've got to sift through your entire lexicon, see what works, see what doesn't, see what uh, now. My I am fortunate. I'm I'm my expertise is in a field where our lexicon is highly transparent so that I spend much less time defining words for someone than is than would normally occur with other professions. Jupiter has a big red spot on its atmosphere. We call it Jupiter's red spot, right? The sun has spots. They're officially called sunspots, right? So I don't have to then define what a sunspot is. I can just use the term and keep talking about them. Uh, so just make that clear. With regard to theory, um, what I've done is, uh, because it's very hard to change the public's understanding of a word, if that word has usage outside of your field that will persist, no matter how you define it for them. So theory is one of those words. So someone at home will say, you know, I have a theory that my car, uh, you know, this so that's how they're using the word theory. You can't knock on every door and tell people to use the word differently. So I use the word theory only for established theories that are already in place. Einstein's general theory of relativity, special theory of theory, um, evolutionary theory, this sort of thing. And when people say, oh, well, if it's just a theory, that's, of course, the buzz phrase, I say, um, no, a theory is the highest level of understanding we have of the universe, It is not the lowest level. The lowest level would be a hypothesis. So if someone says, well, if I have a theory that, no, I say Einstein had a theory, you have a hypothesis (laughs) awaiting testing. And then people chuckle at that. And then we, so no one is then uh, distracted by it. And so, uh, yeah, so the word hypothesis is very helpful in this regard. Just tell people they have a hypothesis. If it's not yet tested, it's a hypothesis. If it's tested and it organizes ideas and it gives us insights into future discoveries, it is elevated to the level of theory. So they need. So I will say that if the conversation goes there, but if I'm just a few sentences and sound bites on the evening news, I will not use the term at all. By the way, nor will I use the word fact. A fact is that that word is is fraught. It's fraught because it is a fact that, if I remember the quotes correctly, it's a fact that President Trump said you could use bleach to, to, to cure COVID, or whoever, it is a fact that they said it. That doesn't mean it works. So there's plenty of facts out there that reference things that are not true. So, like I said, the word fact is fraught. It is a fact that Andrew Wakefield published a paper declaring a connection between MMR uh, vaccine and the the, um, measles, mumps, rubella vaccine and autism. There's a fact that he published a paper exploring that connection. That doesn't mean that's a connection. So it is a fact that mothers reported that after their kids were vaccinated, they got, um, they uh, showed symptoms of autism. Okay. Uh, that doesn't make it a car- a cause and effect correlation. So, I don't I never use the word fact ever it's a, it's the word does not work to, to that
3: point I, are there other words that you know you were able to use in your external communications fifteen 20 years ago you're just throwing your hands up like oh, that I can't use that word anymore it's lost its meaning in the general conversation I, I've got to think of something else now
1: yeah, yeah of course no that's it's not a aha moment it's a continual mm-hmm assessment and measurement of the stock value of words as they are used come in and out of use as their definitions shift as cultural social um religious political mores shift uh, you can't just declare that no one wants to learn or how come they don't uh, they don't they don't do their homework that then you're not being an educator you're being sorry You're not being a communicator. Yeah, you can, you know, you are, you're being the professor talking to the chalkboard while you write down your equations and without any concern, whether people are either paying attention or meeting you 90% of the way there, you can't claim yourself to be a communicator unless you turn around, face the audience and meet them 90% of the way towards wherever their brain wiring is. And so, so yeah. Yeah. All This is, happens all the time. I also find that humor enables people to smile while they're learning and then they come back for more. But the landscape of humor has changed, as you surely know, over the years, especially over the recent decades. Certain things that were funny in 2000 are not funny today because of sensitivities have been realigned or uh, arisen. Or maybe the sensitivities were always there, but there was no platform to... To um, to position them, so yes, yeah, plenty of words happens all the time.
3: All right, so let's step back a little bit, and we we talk about or oh, one other thing. Here's yeah. a good
1: example. Here's all a good right. example. I wrote about this in the late '90s, so this is twenty five years in the uh, in the can right now. Uh, of course, in science, in a measurement, we speak of measurement errors, mm. and so. The public wants to know what is the answer, and they don't really have much much way to embrace measurement errors. It doesn't really work, Uh, unless we retrain everyone in school. I don't
3: think box and whisker plots uh, test very well, do they? (laughs) Exactly, exactly.
1: (laughs) So what happens is I saw a news account of a research paper that described the result and it said oh but it's not being um it didn't catch on because the paper had a lot of errors in it and i said what what does that even mean and then i realized the paper talked about the measurement errors and the journalists thought that this meant it had errors and so i i've never used the word error unless it's a literal error So I changed error to uncertainty. I wrote an essay called Certain Uncertainties, (laughs) where I talked about when you measure something, there's uncertainties around those measurements. And I don't even use the word margin of error, which is still used when they report political voting results. That's a start. Margin of error, plus or minus 3%. That came in in the last 20 years. That's very good. That's a start. but Error is the wrong word because they are not errors, even though we use that term. Uncertainty still works. That still has scientific validity, and you don't have to define it for the public. They know what an uncertainty is. And you can say some measured quantities are more uncertain than others. That is a completely understandable sentence.
3: All right. Before I cut you loose, I do have a couple more tangible science questions i've
1: been doing i haven't given you a chance to ask no this is two questions so far
3: this is just extraordinary and i'm happy i'm Uh happy to have you here and talk about these things so um, i was reading the book and which book the most recent one um to infinity and beyond
1: yes yes just came out two Uh, months ago so speed of light of course
3: uh the we know the speed of light and it takes eight minutes for sunlight to get to earth about that yeah Mm -hmm. right one of the things that i i have trouble thinking about and this is one of these cosmic query type things the sun instantly goes away we Uh wouldn't know about it for eight minutes
1: that's correct we'd still orbit we'd still feel sunlight we'd still feel gravity
3: that's that's exactly what i wanted to, to ask do we does the gravitational information also take eight minutes does the earth still act as if it is going in orbit around the sun or is that gravitational force instantly gone
1: yeah, so there's a um, there's a slight subtle difference here. In Einsteinian description of gravity, gravity is the curvature of space-time, okay? So we are orbiting in this curved space-time continuum caused by the sun. And the dimples in a rubber sheet get you most of the way to understand that, where we are sort of um, spiraling, uh, orbiting in the dimple okay so if you instantly take away the sun that is a change in the gravitational field and changes in the gravitational field move at the speed of light so it would take eight minutes for you to even know that the sun wasn't that the sun's gravitational field was no longer operating on Earth. And we would instantly fly off at a tangent, if that were the case. Insta- I mean, after the eight minutes, eight minutes and twenty seconds, if you want to be precise. Yeah. <laughs> right. Right. So yeah. So gravity, uh, and Einstein demonstrated that gravity would move at the same as the speed of light. All
3: right. Excellent. Last thing for for I, I let you go. Talk a little bit about this this speaking tour. I've seen it advertised by different at different theaters slightly different ways. Is it going to be very different at each place, or is this kind of all tying back to, to infinity and beyond, or what, what can people kind of expect?
1: So thanks for noticing that. So uh, my speaking tour is hardly ever bordering on never related to books that I've just published. The speaking tour is I get invited by a city, and many cities across the country, fascinatingly, have this sort of old grand dam theater from a hundred years ago that they've, with, if there's municipal funds, typically there are, or business interests, they fix it up and re, what do you call it, uh, renovate, and they fix up the molding and the statues and the and the gilding, and so it's it's beautiful spaces. And these are back when going to a theater, you would dress up to go to see movies in, in the movie theater. So many of them come from that era. So many towns have such theaters, and they remain in active use. I get invited to a city to present, and so I'm, I'm honored and flattered. I give them a list of 12 to 15 possible topics that they choose from, and then they tell me, we want you to come talk on this subject, and that's what I do. So for Richmond, they picked the topic that I've given them, Cosmic Collisions, Oh, my gosh. Cosmic things that go bump in the night. Uh, there's so many things that collide. Stars collide. Galaxies collide. Black holes collide. Um, uh, asteroids collide with Earth. Uh, you know, the, we collided with an asteroid recently to try to deflect it. So it's everything that's going on in the universe. You know, this idea that, oh, we live in a static, beautiful, but safe, No no the universe is a shooting gallery and so i'm there to talk about how much of a shooting gallery it is and yes there, i have some videos and slides uh and it's, it's mostly me talking but that's what richmond is getting there are other topics i think i've been in this venue before um other topics that that I, they, didn't choose because I I was there a couple of years ago or not would be the search for life in the universe. And that's continually being updated with the congressional hearings on aliens and all of this. That's a whole topic, search for life in the universe. One of my favorites is an astrophysicist goes to the movies. (laughs) And that's where I I highlight all manner of scenes, not just from sci-fi films, but other films you would never imagine cared about science, yet there's science in it either done very well or done very badly and i highlight that and that was so popular um there's a sequel to it called an astrophysicist goes to the movies the sequel (laughs) so (laughs) so anyhow that's just a smattering of the topics and typically you know there's a there's a book that i'd written recently and if the theater is interested they might task a a local um, indie publisher to sell them in the lobby but most of the time that's not what happens and if they do it has nothing to do with the talk so so in other words when i go on quote tour i'm not trying to sell you anything i'm a (laughs) servant of your of your appetite of your cosmic appetite as declared by the host for whatever it's their judgment of the audience's interest.
3: Excellent. Well, I've got the book. It's wonderful. And personally, thank you for, as a meteorologist, thank you for starting with the atmosphere in the book.
1: Oh, we did. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks for noticing that we started. Oh, I yeah.
3: noticed that right away. Yeah,
1: yeah. The, the the There's a whole discussion of the atmosphere. Because mm-hmm. the book, To Infinity and Beyond, by the way, it's a beautiful book. I would say that even if I was not co-author of it, I co-wrote it with our longtime uh, senior producer for star talk my my podcast this is a collaboration between star talk and nat national geographic books and so the book is they don't know how to make an ugly book uh this is national (laughs) geographic so it's highly illustrated um and it's an exploration of what it was like standing flat footed on earth looking up and what did it take for us to ascend from earth to the stars and beyond You know, we go from Icarus, that's a nice first story to tell, and Icarus dies, and you say to yourself, well, oh, I'm not going to try to fly. Or you're going to say, well, let me maybe design the wings differently of a different material rather than wax, okay? And, of course, they thought that temperature would get higher as you ascended the atmosphere, when, of course, the exact opposite is the case. Uh, And so it's fun to explore what was imagined to be sort of infinitely far away in the history of this quest, we would then conquer it. Uh, let me use a less militaristic word. <laughs> we would then achieve those goals. And then we were standing in a new place. Now we are now in balloons and we can say, well, how do we fly with not a balloon? Now we have airplanes and how do we fly out of the atmosphere. We have rockets. How do we fly beyond how do we fly to the moon how do we fly beyond the moon well we can't do that yet but we can send our robotic emissaries how do we go beyond those well then our mind takes us there all right and so part of this quest the whole book chronicles and storytells the this quest which is quite a, it's the noblest thing i mean our species did it and no one other species comes close to even wondering that this could be something we could do so I, I got to hand it to humans for to, <laughs> to, to make him this work in that way. So yeah, that book only just came out two months ago and uh, very proud of it. And it's a very beautiful. Oh, and the DNA of my podcast, Star Talk is science, pop culture, and humor. I mentioned humor earlier. The pop culture part is you show up at the door with a pop culture scaffold that I already know because that's the definition of pop culture it's a common knowledge i don't have to say who beyonce is or what a football field looks like there's certain fundamentals that are out there we take the science and clad it onto that scaffold so that you already care about something and now you care about it more because i've added more information for you to celebrate about the thing this pop culture thing you cared about point is in this book we do that continually if there's a Hollywood movie that touches some of the topics that we address, I dip in, this is like the scenery along the way of the book, I dip into the movie, and we talk about what how well the movie did or didn't uh, portray that physics
3: wonderful uh dr tyson uh, i know you've got to get get going so yep. thank you so much for your time uh shout out to chuck nice and all the team there at star talk love the work love what he brings to it as well and when you have the guest my, my on,
1: comedian my my co-host comedian yes. or
3: foil <laughs> uh-huh. <laughs> but uh it's wonderful thank you so much looking forward to seeing you uh when you're down here in, in richmond next week uh, and travel safe sir
4: excellent thank you for those well wishes Looking beyond the atmosphere, here's Tony Rice with your Astronomy Outlook. One of the highlights of the autumn sky is the constellation Pegasus. Actually, an asterism within Pegasus. You know what constellations are. Stars that form a supposedly recognizable pattern in the sky. Some of those can be easier to find, like Orion the Hunter. The three bright stars in Orion's belt certainly help there. Many others, though, are not so recognizable, especially from light-polluted suburban skies. constellations, they're a formal thing, 88 of them defined by a group of professional astronomers. That formality is necessary for consistency in how they communicate with each other about what they're seeing. Constellations form neighborhoods in the sky, but you probably know a lot more asterisms. These are far more recognizable and less formalized patterns within the constellations. Those three stars within Orion's belt are a good example. So is Orion's sword. So are the Big and Little Dippers, the most recognizable parts of the constellation Ursa Major and Ursa Minor, respectively. This week, though, you can find Pegasus using its asterism, the Great Square. You don't need an app or a star map to do it. Just what you already know, and using the same techniques that astronomers have used for centuries, star hopping. Start with the Big Dipper, on the northern horizon. Follow the outer bowl of the Dipper up to Polaris at the end of the handle of the Little Dipper. Continue that line up past the constellation Cassiopeia, which looks like a sideways M this time of year, and you'll reach the four stars of the Great Square, which make up the body of Pegasus. Slightly dimmer stars extend below, making up the four legs, and the neck and head extend from the top left. You can continue your geometric tour to the left with the Great Triangle, also known as the Summer Triangle, for its prominence during summer nights, but it's visible in the evening sky through December. This asterism is made up of the brightest stars across three constellations. Cygnus the Swan, Aquila the Eagle, and Lyra the Heart. That's your astronomy outlook. Follow me at RTP Hokey for more spacey stuff like this.
3: And guys, I was just absolutely in my element talking with him about science and how to communicate science. Uh, and the, the things you want to do, as he said, to reach people where they are. I I let my daughter know I was doing this. And she really emphasized this point that he made is that you have to meet people 90% of where they are already. Don't turn your back and and write on a chalkboard. Look at people, be with people, understand where they are to make that connection with them. That is so key in this day and age.
2: I mean, I agree with that a hundred percent. You know, I tell I think I might even say on this podcast, you know, when it comes to weather forecast, you have I don't know, maybe two dozen places to get a weather forecast from on any given point in time, at any point in day. You know, so what differentiates you from those other 24 people? Well, accuracy is going to have some to do with it, but a lot of times it has to do with the connection that you have with the community. Now, there's downsides to that, as Neil deGrasse Tyson spoke about. You have some people who are very personable, but who might not know what they're talking about. But when you have somebody who knows what they're talking about is in the community or meeting with the people where they are that is where you have the best results and that's why you have people like neil degrasse tyson who's widely respected and acclaimed not only because he knows what he's talking about but because he's doing it in a way where you can listen and say hey yeah i know what he's talking about hey i know what she's talking about so great job sean with the
0: podcast yeah, there's just a lot to unpack there. I mean, <laughs> I, I wish we could have like kept the conversation going. I wish we all could have been in there and asked questions. I mean, we could have chatted with him for hours, but obviously a very busy guy and does not have the time for that. But I, I, you know, I think what really highlighted for me, the challenge that we're facing these days is he went through words that are difficult to use these days and have double meanings. You know, he talked about how he, he doesn't even like to use the word fact. He said the word does not work. Fact. And that kind of blew my mind. It's Mm -hmm. like, gosh, we don't even know what facts are. Because he says, you know, it's a fact that somebody said this, but it's not a fact that what they said is true. And it's like, gosh, that's a good point. So even the meaning of the word fact is difficult. And how I liked also how he used, you know, if something hasn't been tested yet, what you're saying is a hypothesis. It's not a theory. He talked about, you know, oh, I have a theory about this. It's like, no, you have an hypothesis because you haven't tested it yet. If it's been tested, then you can call it a theory. So just talking about that and the word error, he mentioned that as well. How if you use the word error, people might say, oh, well, then this paper is just garbage because it's full of errors. It's like, no, those were measurement errors. It's talking about uncertainty. It wasn't an error itself. So he's very cautious about the word error and only using the word error when a true error was made so gosh we have to be so careful about the wording because it can be misconstrued and misunderstood so easily gosh i mean him just going through those different words just shows you what a challenge it is today how you have to be so careful about the wording and it is all about the wording and being very explicit and explaining things in detail otherwise it'll get totally misunderstood
3: it, it takes a lot of work because certain words have different connotations. And, and like he said, you're not going to go in, knock on people's doors, go, no, you're using that word wrong. You're, you're not going to do that, right? So this is why you kind of have to take opportunities as they come to redirect what you want to get out of a word or a meaning like that. It's like, you know, when we talk about weather, we talk about severe weather. In meteorology, we're talking about something very specific. We're talking about damaging winds that are generally more than 58 miles an hour. We're talking about a tornado. But to a lot of the general public, severe weather is just bad. That's just bad weather, right? So language is always changing. and As he said, it's always evolving. It's not like, well, we just kind of watch how the lexicon changes. Some, Some terms just don't mean what they used to. Humor is changing through time. So it is always it is always a process. And I think that's one of the things that anybody who's trying to to communicate science needs to be aware of. And he does a great job with the humor as well. I try to do it with humor. Uh, Sometimes I'm a little more successful uh, than others. But it was certainly just a a great, a great podcast. I'm very grateful for him uh, to spend some time with us. Joe, we've got a couple other more interesting things coming up uh, down the pike, right?
2: Oh yeah, we sure do. So coming up on uh the Monday after Thanksgiving, this is October, excuse me, November 22nd. Oh my gosh, doing it all wrong. Let's try it again. November 27th. There we go. Third time's a charm. We are going to have Joe Morowski from American Ninja Warrior come on the podcast. Joe uh, is also known as the weatherman on American Ninja Warrior. Yes, he is a meteorologist. And yes, we are going to talk to him about the weather. And his time on the NBC hit show. Then on December the fourth, we actually have one of my uh college professors, Dr. Alan Robot. Now, he of course is a meteorologist, but he's also a very, very big Bob Dylan fan. In fact, he's such a Bob Dylan fan that he did his PhD thesis on Bob Dylan and the weather. Uh, so that is really interesting. And then we also have an episode for you on December 18th. That's going to be 10 things to know about winter. And then sometime in that week between Christmas and New Year's, we're going to have our year in review. So the train keeps on rolling here at the Across the Sky podcast team. Uh, we've gotten a couple of emails of feedback over the past days and weeks, and we certainly appreciate that. And you certainly can continue to send that to podcasts at Lee.net. That's podcast at Lee.net or feeling like and want to give us a call you certainly can at 609-272-7099 609-272-7099
3: back to you Sean all right good stuff all around anything else matter you good man
0: I'm just I'm still letting letting that interview wash over me man I, I, yeah. I think the other thing he said you know a lot of times a lot of the people that are spreading misinformation are very charismatic mm-hmm. and so that's why they're catching people latch on to them but it's like well, you know what? We need charismatic people to be spreading good information. He is the prime example. We need more Neil deGrasse Tysons in the world to spread good information and be charismatic.
3: Yeah, I no argument with that for me. All right, gentlemen, thank you very much. And for Joe Martucci and for Matt Hauer and in absentia, Kirsten Lang in Tulsa, uh, thanks for joining us this week on the Across the Sky podcast. I'm meteorologist Sean Sublett in Richmond, Virginia. Have a great week, and we will see you next time.
0: Oh my gosh, I'm adopting a puppy right now, but I realize what's at home. Oh no, I have nothing. Well, except unconditional love. But yeah, no crate, no pee-pee pads, no dental chews for his little puppy teeth. Before I doubt myself as a new parent, I just get Instacart to deliver everything from PetSmart. Easy, just like raising a puppy is going to be, right? Get Pet Essentials from PetSmart with Instacart. Visit Instacart.com to get free delivery on your first three orders. Offer valid for a limited time. $10 minimum per order. Additional terms apply. You've worked hard for what you have. Your money, your assets, your 401k,
4: and home. Isn't it
0: all worth protecting? Nearly one in four consumers have been a victim of identity theft. LifeLock Ultimate Plus helps protect your finances with up to $3 million in reimbursement.